the idea of turning a company around, right? It's something that uh, face a lot of CEOs or leaders these days. And is there a sort of structure? Is there a way in which you go about it? You know, you walk into a company with the idea of of trying to make it more profitable. What what does that look like to you? How do you start that process? With all your experience in turnaround companies uh, or turning around companies and in, in, in whatever aspect, is there a common themes that you've seen? I mean, you've done this time and time again. Is there common themes? You go, yep, this is the same thing that I saw in the last three companies. This is happening again. What advice do you have for other CEOs or aspiring CEOs or entrepreneurs around their own leadership development? Do you learn leadership through being a leader? Or can you go and learn through a half-day course? Hey there, my name is Daniel Franco and this is the Creating Synergy podcast, your business and leadership podcast where we speak to high-profile leaders and thinkers about their careers and dig deep by asking the questions we all want the answers to, uncovering their stories, strategies, leadership lessons and their secrets to success. So before we jump into the podcast, I wanted to start this one a little bit differently and put an ask out there for everyone listening in. We've been looking at the data lately and noticed that many people who listen to this podcast haven't actually subscribed to it yet. It would mean the absolute world to me for those who are listening in to subscribe. By doing so, the more subscribers we get, the more high quality leaders and experts we get on the podcast and share their stories with you. And from that, the more we all learn. So thanks in advance. So welcome to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. Today, we are thrilled to have Myron Mann, CEO of the Bedford Group, joining us. Being a product from the US and attending Woodstock when he was 18 years old, to finding a niche in leading Fortune 500 businesses through turnarounds and restructures, Myron's life and work experience are unparalleled. He's passionate about all things social impact in businesses And he believes that the high-quality leadership is the key to changing society and improving the world we live in. In this episode, Myron will share his experiences, strategies and challenges in managing a thriving organisation, offer valuable lessons for anyone looking to take their business to the next level, and all the amazing work that Bedford Group are doing as the second largest employer of people with disability in Australia. So without further ado, please enjoy my chat with the inspiring Myron Mann. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco and today on the show, we have the great Myron Mann. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Quick rundown, CEO of Bedford Group, second largest employer of uh, people with disability in Australia, supporting approximately about 2,000 South Australians and over 500 plus staff. Is that about right? That's right. Uh, Previously, CEO of Sheridan, Australia. Correct. And many more other CEO gigs. We'll go into that a bit later. But you're an expert in turning businesses around. Is that what I'm likely That's what to I believe? Try to be. That's what you're trying to do. <laughs> um, you're passionate about great leadership, being a fellow of the Governor's Leadership Foundation. You were on the board there for four years, but you're also passionate about social impact. So we'll go into those sort of topics as we go through. But I, but I am going to start off this podcast um, slightly differently. And it was because it was something that you wrote in your bio when you submitted that form to us. Right. And you said, I'll quote, I'm one of the only few people in Australia that would have attended Woodstock. (laughs) (laughs) 1969. (laughs) 1969. That's a long time ago. So were you 
18 or were you old enough to attend? Like, how did that work I was, back then? Uh, I had just turned 20. Just turned 20. Uh, there you go. So uh, I was in university. Yeah, wow. And there was no advertising of Woodstock. It was a it word was, of mouth. Yeah, wow. Uh, I think as you do in university, uh, I think probably heard about it on a Wednesday and got on the road on Thursday. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Off we went with no idea where we would go. What, 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 you, was, what it was really what about, or what, we're, what we're going to experience. So, yeah. what was it like? Like, what was the experience like? Well, I hate to say my memory's a bit foggy, uh, yeah, but uh, no, the, just just from the circumstances. Yeah. But uh, uh, it was a <laughs> big farm field, yep. raining, yep. full of mud. Yeah, most incredible lineup of performing artists yeah. that you could. Possibly I was imagine. doing a bit of research on it. I, yeah. I know about Woodstock, but I didn't really yeah. know the depths yeah. until before. And I was like, wow. Like, yeah. the, it, the it just, and I, it, it, it sort of just happened. You know, mm. it wasn't like one of these planned events. And people just continually rolled in over the, over the weekend. And it, it, music just kept going. And, and you couldn't always get close to the stage, you, yeah. you know, if, you, if there was someone particular you wanted to yeah. see or like, whatever. Like you Jimmy. Get as close to the stage yeah. as you could, but there yeah. were just too many people trying to get there. Everybody was just sleeping. You know, is there anything that sticks in your mind? Like you know, I said your memory was foggy. I, I get that, <laughs> but you know, considering the circumstances, the the um, is there anything that sticks in your mind that you go, you look back on it at Woodstock and go, I can't believe I saw that, or I can't believe I witnessed that, or yeah, well, I, I think that. The, the story that probably sticks out in my mind is even the 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 journey to Woodstock. Yeah, okay. Um, we actually hitchhiked. Oh wow! Uh, and it was probably a little over a thousand miles to yeah, wow. You know, so you know, fifteen, sixteen hundred kilometers to to get there. And uh, when we got to, so we started out in Virginia, and when we got to Washington D.C. There's a big beltway that goes around Washington mm-hmm. D.C. And we got picked up by these two guys uh, in a car and. They said that they had been around the whole Beltway twice because they couldn't remember which exit they needed to get <laughs> off. If we could point them onto the right exit, they would they would drive us as yeah. far as they were going. Yeah, wow! <laughs> so I just remember this this crazy two guys that picked us up. You wouldn't do that today. No. You couldn't do that today. No. You know, in those days, it, you didn't feel unsafe at all. You just met people, talked to them. Well, what's interesting is probably safer these days, but it's just there's so much more media. Isn't there really? I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we wouldn't do it today because it, it's it today. so visibly available yeah. to see what can go wrong. Mm. Um, did you have the long locks and the mustache? Is that like what? what? <laughs> I, I, I had a, a bit of an afro style. Oh, yeah, my hair was, was actually quite curly if I let it grow. And so, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I was. I looked the part. Yeah, well done. <laughs> that's amazing. We won't spend too much time. Now, you also said you're a great cook. Is that correct? Well, everyone tells me that. Yeah, uh, I um, get a bit of love I, for. I, well, I, I I really enjoy cooking. Yeah, uh, I find it relaxing where most people find it stressful. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, what's your best dish? Ooh, um, I make a mean smoked salmon pasta. Oh, do you? Mm, yeah, very good. Uh, sort of a comfort food. This Sunday at your house is <laughs> yeah, what I'm hearing. Absolutely, oh, invites in the mail. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So. Normally we would start off with a bit of context around your uh, your early years and mm. obviously sure. you've just heard about um, Woodstock. But, yeah. yeah, it'd be great to sort of understand you are born in the U.S. Whereabouts? 
I was born in North Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah, lived there for 10 days when my mother left the hospital. We, we relocated to Virginia, which is the next state up yeah, okay. on, the, on the East Coast. So, and I grew up there. So provide some context. What, what does the early life of Myron Man look like in the U.S.? Uh, look, it, it was probably, you know, best childhood you could ever describe. Yeah. I grew up in a small town of about 2,500 people mm-hmm. in the foothills of the mountains, uh, you know, not that far from the Shenandoah Valley. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it was pretty normal day. It, yeah. you, you know, my, I'd leave the house, come home by dark. My mother had no idea where yeah. I was, that, you know, that, those sort of things. There were yeah. no, no phones. No, If yeah. she needed me, she should put the word out. Somebody yeah. would – Somebody would. you knew everybody in town yeah. basically. So it was uh, – Those was, were the days. Those pretty pretty enjoyable days yeah. growing up. And and so you, you you went through school, went through uni. Tell us the the story of, of your growing up. And I do believe that you entered the U.S. Army as well. Is I that did. correct? Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us that story of how you were and why you decided to enlist? Sure. Um, yeah. High school was was fairly straightforward. You know, played all different types of sports. Basketball was my my yep. favorite. Uh, Good sport. Uh, tried to. Think I could play basketball when I got to uni, and I think I got out there looking down the first day, and there was no one. It was anywhere near my size. So I was just looking up to everyone, <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, well, this is this is probably not going to work yeah. <laughs> very long. But yeah. uh, what, what position, point guard? I was point guard. Yeah, yeah but that was, um, you know, it was probably ambitious for me to think that I could go much further than that. Um, and look, I went to went to uni. Um, started out, I was going to do a degree in uh, in pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a two-year program at uni and a three-year program at uh, the uh, medical school. Decided not to do that in the second year, stayed on and did a degree in organic chemistry because I, not because I really wanted to do something in organic chemistry, yeah. but I just liked it. Just liked it. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, had a had a fantastic time. In fact, probably was the early introduction to to the, the, the real science of leadership, my uh, I was the president of my social fraternity, mm-hmm. and uh, as a as the president during the summer holidays, I attended leadership school at Northwestern University in Chicago uh, yep. for about three weeks uh, during the summer. So it was an introduction to a little bit around what is leadership, and yeah. it's probably stuck with me since then. Yeah, very good. Army, army, yeah. Uh, I I was so, so was it after the university? Then? So finished university. Yeah. So you, you you had a deferment while you were yeah. in. Yeah. So Woodstock was in amongst when you were at university. Yeah, that was in yeah. the university. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. after so, university. Yeah. So um, the U.S. changed its draft system to a lottery system. Okay. Uh, so this is around because it was around when Vietnam was on. Yeah, was it, it was. It was yeah. right in the middle of Vietnam, yeah, yeah, and okay. uh, so the the system was a drew out birth dates, you know, yeah, it's your okay. birthday. And my my number, well, I still remember today, was number 54. And I, yeah. I think the, the 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 thought rule every year, they sort of said this is how far down we'll probably get. I think they said that year we'll get to about 180. So I thought, well, rather than be drafted and somebody else determine where where I go, why don't I enlist and try to determine where I go yeah, okay. myself? So, yeah, so that was the... And you were in there. For there was no, there was no getting around it. That no. was for sure. Did you, did you serve in? No, I didn't, no, no, I never went out of the states. No, it, no I went through you know, all the active duty uh, training yeah. in the infantry, and and, and uh, then wound up back in the reserves. It okay. was, 
just about the time I got to the West Coast, which is where they would send troops to Vietnam from, yeah. um, uh, Nixon started pulling troops uh, back out of back Vietnam out. about that point. So, you know, lucky. Yeah. Lucky never to go. So you're in there for six years? Six years. So two years on active duty and four years in the reserves. In the reserves. Yeah. And just decided to leave because or didn't see yourself? Never wanted to make it a career. Never wanted, never wanted to make it a career. Yeah. It was um, it was just to fulfill the, the, the obligation. Do you look back now at your time in the Army and the Reserves and think, oh, yeah, that actually set me up for life, my way of thinking, the discipline that I learned, something that I took away from one of the, the generals or the majors or whoever was in charge of you. Does, does that... Um, is there anything that sort of sticks to mind for you in that space? Yeah, I, I actually think the uh, it is. I actually think the army would be good for everyone. Yeah, uh, there not so much around the the, the 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 thought of fighting or anything like no, that. Correct. But it, but the the what you learn the you, you learn independence mm. more than you learn anything. You learn self discipline. Uh, you learn to to. Structure your day. You learn to structure yourself. You learn to manage yourself, uh, and it probably um, one of the thing that sticks out in my mind the most. It, this will sound strange because it didn't come from a general or anyone. Yeah. It came from the guy who slept in the bed next to me in the yeah. first barracks I was in in basic training. And I asked him why he joined the army, and he said, "Well, the judge told me I could join the army or I could go to jail for life." And I said, "Well, what did you do?" And he said. Well, they tried to say say I murdered a guy, but I didn't. Anyway, so here I got this guy sleeping next to me who's been oh, sent wow. to the army. And I noticed that when we were doing the training that he was really, really struggling with how to read a map. And so I actually taught him how to read a map. And it was sort of a, uh, you know, a moment where I, I realized, you know, it, yeah, we came from very different backgrounds mm. and, and uh, wound up in the army for completely different reasons. Uh, but he was forever thankful that because mm. you know, it helped him get through his his basic training. Yeah. yeah, I love that story. Yeah. Just a quick note: this episode is brought to you by Synergy IQ, leaders in enabling change. Synergy IQ are the ones you call when the change or challenge seems so complex and you don't know where to start. But more importantly, we're the ones you call when you want to make a change that will actually last. If you want to check them out, it's at synergyiq.com.au. I, uh, I, whether it's the army or I think you can apply the same methodology to sport when you're playing in a team. I, I remember growing up down at Henley playing for Henley Sharks Football Club and at the time there was, and there possibly still is, there was a lot of housing trust in that area, mm. low socioeconomic area and, and the, the, different, um, the different types of people young men that were in my football team, we were in all different walks of life going through different, you know, there were fathers and mothers that were alcoholic, drug addicts versus the affluent, right? Mm. So it was just this concoction of young men coming together but playing for the same thing. Like one coach telling us this is our game plan, this is our strategy, this is our ultimate goal and then working to together to try to achieve that goal and utilising all the different personalities. Yeah. And I just think it's – I actually just think it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I've pushed my, my children into sp, uh, sp, team sport, basketball, they play as well. Yeah. Um, 
for that very reason. I just I just think it adds so much value to someone's life. Yeah, I, I think it does. And the army was just one big team. Yeah, yeah, they just had one way of doing it. Yeah, and you had no option but to do it. Their yeah. Way. Well, there's a little bit more riding on <laughs> in the when you are in the army and you do. Yeah. When you are serving, I mean, it is about life now, mm. isn't it? As opposed to just winning a game. Very much so. Yeah. So let's talk about leaving the army. Where to, where to? Where does Myron go from here? Well, I actually had a job offer before I uh, went in the army, uh, which they put on hold, yeah. which was uh, not unusual uh, in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, most, most companies were uh, very – responsible and, and, and say, well, if you're going in the Army to serve, then we'll, we'll put the job offer on hold and when yeah. you're back, uh, if, you, if you want it, we'll, we'll make yeah, it available, doing your make it available for the, to for you. the country, aren't you? Yeah, so I went to work for a Fortune 500 uh, textile company yep. um, just as a, a management trainee. Yep. Uh, what, in those, what was the company now? Are they still around these days? Or? Uh, they're no longer yeah. – well, they're, they're, they're offshoots of it around. Uh, yeah, it was okay. called Burlington Industries. Mm-hmm. Uh Turnover was about three billion. Yeah, at, wow. at that time, so it was a big, big so company. Big, yeah, yeah, <laughs> international company. At that time, pretty yeah, big. Yeah. Sort of 30, 30, uh, 30, 35,000 employees yeah, across wow. the, across the world. So you were just you know one of many. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. They probably hired four or five hundred management trainees a year, yeah, uh, okay. and the time would filter those out. Some mm-hmm. went forward with the company. Some went other other directions. Other directions. Uh, but it was a very structured uh, training program, uh, everything from uh, lessons in how to dress properly to, yeah, well, uh, you, know, it's, you know, when you're attending dinners, this is how you do it, this is what you do. So it was, a you know, to financial management, to anything to do. But it, so we're building but, young professionals. Absolutely. Doing, that, yeah. that was what it was about. So, so you, couldn't, from you, the, you, you couldn't wind up in a better place. Yeah, you know, that's to, amazing. To learn that. So you've gone from the Army, which teaches discipline and yeah. resilience and, 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 and self-improvement and all the above, to mm. a Fortune 500 who's then adding to those layers. So you've got a pretty good foundation at this point. Well, you do. Yeah. You do. You do. I remember one of the guys that I, I worked for who was at the, one of the vice presidents of manufacturing at the time because because of my science degree I was sort of pushed that direction towards manufacturing and uh, in, in in those days we they wrote memos as opposed to emails yeah but the same concept applies and he said to me he said if you want me to to read what you're writing to me and you want me to act on something then I want you to say it in the first two sentences I don't want to have to read the entire page and yeah. from he said it's like being a journalist yeah. If you don't grab my attention either by the headline or the first sentence, I probably won't get there. Yeah. So it was a lesson really in, in, in communication. Communication. Mm. Yeah. We don't have a lot of time to sort of, you know, yeah. give me a lot of context behind it. Do you still this. use that <laughs> philosophy today? Do you, uh, in your emails to the, the, the team or to the wider company? Probably to the team, I yeah. would probably do. If I'm if I'm communicating with the the board or or externally, I probably have to put a little more context in yeah. there. Than just a straightforward. Yeah. yeah. Do you uh, do you grow through the through the company at this so stage? I did. I, I I I don't remember exactly how many times I relocated, yeah. but I, I I counted at one point. I think before I came to Australia that I had lived in sixteen houses. Yeah, I had, wow. I'd moved that many times. For, for the because for the of company, the, yeah, yeah okay. basically you were, you were you were offered lots of opportunity wherever jobs came up. They would would try to 
keep you moving. I think that was part of the the, mm. the, the, the strategy in retaining talent was mm-hmm. to keep challenging and keep putting them in bigger jobs and keep moving, which meant generally relocating. But they had a very generous relocation policy. It wasn't hard to say yeah. yes to, to relocate. It was just you just didn't tie it. Have any roots tied down anywhere? Yeah. But, but I, I wasn't working in my hometown anyway, yeah. so I was uh, the moving didn't really make. Did you have family or anything? At I this did. Point? I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I had a uh, my wife and I were, were moving around. I yeah. got married pretty soon after. Uh, you started. Yeah, started. Yeah, so, very good. Yeah. The um, the moving though. This, so was the moving always tied to a promotion, or is that how you sort of generally, just moved up? Generally moved up the ranks. To, uh, it was was tied to. A promotion or a, or a bigger role of some yeah. some sort, yeah. The um, the way of management back then would have been slightly different, uh, and what you would have learned back then would would have changed a lot these days. Is there uh, is there anything that still holds true as you if you remember from a from all those learnings from a Fortune five hundred back in those days? Um. Yeah, I I I, I think. Coming along, you learn to, to accept the fact that um, you, you, you could never be ready. Yeah, you you, you had to take the opportunity yeah. when uh, when it was offered. So at twenty nine, I think I had something like twelve hundred people under me. Yeah, wow. So uh, it was pretty quick. Yeah, and uh, I wouldn't have said I was ready. I was really learning on the job. Yeah, uh, and I think you know that's there are a lot of. You know, global companies today, the successful companies that that do challenge their employees, mm. and I think I would just say to anyone who might be listening that you know, if the opportunity comes, grab it. Yeah, step into the ambiguity. Absolutely, trust yourself. Did, did mm. you? Um, <laughs> Twenty nine years old, running twelve hundred, twelve hundred odd people. Do you? Was there anything that sticks out in your mind at that point? I mean, that, that would be an, an overwhelming responsibility for someone of that age. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you weren't equipped, but what was it about you that they saw uh, that they thought, yeah, this is someone that could do it? Or was it, sorry for a lack of a better way of explaining, was it you were in the right place at the right time, therefore, you know? There's always probably some of that. Yeah. Uh, I think also most people who get those opportunities probably have someone in the background who's sort of sponsoring them yeah. uh, in, in, a, in a way. And I think I, I had a, a fairly early mentor in the, in the, in the, in the training mm-hmm. part of it who probably recognized that I did have leadership potential and yeah. management potential and, uh, and, and probably pushed uh, to get, get me that opportunity yeah. on a, on a number, number of those times. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it happens generally that someone has an influence and they influence other people. You know, yeah. and, you, and if you get the opportunity and you're successful, then, then you're pretty yeah. much on your way at that yeah. point. So advice in that is stay passionate, stay true, do what you say you're going to do. Is that the I, – I, Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, we'll, we'll probably talk about it a little bit later. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I have a one sort of over overriding sort of – um, view about managing and leading, and, mm-hmm. and it, it really comes down to, to managing expectations. Yeah, okay. uh, whether that's in a relationship or whether it's in business or whatever it might be in. If 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 you're not on the same page with everyone, then somebody's going to get disappointed at yeah. some point. 
It's just being clear about that, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Just the clarity around. We will go into that yep. as we get through. So what happens next? Where do you grow? You grow into this position, decide what point do you come to Australia? And I, and I think I read somewhere that you've lived in three different countries. Did you move country? Was all those moves within the US? So all or? that was in the US. Yeah. Uh, I, I did do a little bit of work for the company in, in Italy uh, okay. for, for a while, mainly just a, a, a project, uh, which ultimately sort of got me to Australia uh, okay. in, a, in a funny sort of way. Yeah. Um, I, I left that company and went with another Fortune 500 company who was trying to start up a new Division, so I, I I gained some experience in a in another company, which was always helpful. I think you know, I think if you stay in the same organization yeah. for for a long, long time, used to be people work for, had an entire career in, yeah. in one one sort of organization. These days, I think people benefit by by getting experience elsewhere. Yeah. So I was with this. I moved and I was with this other company, and I was continually being called about job opportunity in Australia and uh, by a uh, headhunter out of New York. And in those days, headhunters actually did actually recruit. They mm-hmm. didn't actually just take applications. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I had some exposure to to them through uh, through the, the consulting work I'd done in Italy because yeah. they had been part of that project team. Okay. So that's how they got to know me and I got yeah. to know them. And they would call and I said, look, I'm not even sure I even know where Australia is, so I have to actually look it up here. Yeah, wow. Well, I mean, I, I kind of I knew from you know. you'd heard of the country. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, it's it's funny when you 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 live and grow up in the U.S. I mean, it's so big and so insular, and you read all these the time about most people don't even have a passport. Most yeah. people in the U.S. don't wake up worried about what's going on in the rest of the world yeah. or what's the exchange rate or any of those sorts of things because it doesn't actually affect their life that much. Yeah, um, so it's it's very different than, mm. than living in outside of the U.S., I've found. And, and your perspective on what goes on in the U.S. changes a, a great deal too, living outside. Yeah, what, was, what do you think that is? Is, is it just the, the amount of people? I mean, there's other countries with more people, but is there – what is the – Well, outside, patriot- outside of the big cities – Yeah. Um, I think you know it's people wake up, they go to work. You know, they they they're not really, or in their minds, they're not significantly influenced by mm. what's going on in the yeah. rest of the world. And if you're living in the big cities, you're probably more in touch with it. The yeah. news is probably a little more in your face, and yeah. probably have some maybe maybe some involvement somewhere that uh, that you have some more knowledge about it than others. But if you if you if you're cattle farmer in Kansas and you wake up and go out, you, you're probably not too worried about what's yeah, going on in the rest no, of the world. Look, you see it. I mean, with the world of social media these days, there's these TikTok videos going yeah. around of, of some people who they're interviewing in. The, the, some of them will say, where do you think Argentina is? And one of them one of them will go, I don't know, is that in Indiana? Like yeah. they, they, they have no idea. No. Um, their first thought is never outside of the yeah, US. Correct. It's always it's inside. Always inside. Yeah. yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, so what happened to get to Australia? They, yeah. they Finally, one day I said, okay, you know, what, what's the job? What are we talking about? And they said, well, look, worst case is you'll go on an interview and you'll, you'll have a two-week trip to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> and I, so anyway, I, I said, okay, I will. And I, I, I came to Australia and I met with the owners of the, of the, the business and uh, we, we flew around Australia and visited all the, the many sites that they had in the business. It was a 
reasonable sized business, turned yep. over about five hundred million dollars. Yep. And uh, what was your thoughts of Australia like coming in? Oh, for I the thought first it was time? fantastic. I yeah. absolutely loved it. I mean, but you know, staying in Double Bay in Sydney, and why wouldn't you love it? Yeah, hundred <laughs> you know? percent. Uh, but flying around the the countryside was really interesting for me, and meeting every, all the people and talking to people in various parts of the the business. And this was a business that had actually had a very good underlying business, yep. uh, and and it but it was had substantial debt. Yeah, and they had had unfortunately had to uh, abort a, a, a an IPO in when the stock market. Crashed, oh, okay. and they traded on for a few years beyond that, and, and interest rates started to really go up, you know, in the nineties, and mm-hmm. uh, and they just got to the point where they had to do something. So that's that's where that's where, where, I, that's where I got. At, at what point was this the point that you started becoming the expert in turning around businesses? Or well, I had what, been doing it in, in in divisions of some yeah, of these other companies, okay. and I think that's why this head headhunting company that I was with, because that was the project we had in Italy. They, I think they said this guy's got experience in how to how to redesign yeah. some of this. Kudos for them for looking outside of Australia. Or were they already outside of Australia? Like the company, so, so the, the company that you worked with in Italy, the recruitment company, where were they based? They were based out of New York. They were based in New York. Okay. So they yeah. had heard of uh, this opportunity in Australia. They were working, they had, they had an office in, in, uh, in Australia and they were working with go. this company okay. and had also been involved in some of the, the early labor government uh Policies around textile clothing and footwear yeah, and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, and so this company is this the one that ends up becoming Sheridan? Well, or it owns Sheridan. It owns it's Sheridan. It's the parent company uh, of Sheridan. Okay. So part of the solution when we when we finally got to a solution for it was uh, was to to sell Sheridan. Yeah, basically. Okay, uh, so very good. And restructure the rest of it. Yeah. yeah. It's the only towers that I had in my house for a long time, which is the Sheridan Tower. <laughs> my wife's obsessed. <laughs> They're still the best. Yeah, yeah, they are very good. And then they had that reputation on a worldwide basis. Yeah. So you've, you've moved to Australia. Where did you set up in Sydney? Brought the family over, everything? Yep. Came over and... Um, um, Children at this point? Uh, yep, yeah, one son. One son. Um, and uh, we... Lived on the North Shore of Sydney, yep. uh, in St. Ives. Uh, so um, office was in Surrey Hills. So, yeah, you know, a little bit of a drive and commute every day. But, uh, yeah, wasn't too bad. Uh, and so, what'd you do? What was your job? What was the main role? To, to, to well, the main try- role. It, it, it was funny because I, the first time I sat down with the board, you know, in the, in the interviewing process, I said, "I'm really an operational." Person, yeah. you know, you've got twenty-two different lenders in this lending syndicate who want a hundred million dollars repaid. Mm. They were putting pressure on the company, so yeah. something had to happen. And I said, "That's that's not my expertise. It's not what I do or what I have done." You know, but uh, so we we agreed on how we would manage that, and I, I brought in a CFO that you know, had a lot of experience in, yeah. in that area. But so together we partnered. In and, and managed all those banks at the same time we were restructuring all the operations. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, so it was a, it was a, um, a lot involved. Mm. Uh, we had worldwide operations, uh, so we had subsidiary companies in the U.S., in the U.K., in Japan, in New Zealand. And, you know, we were, so I probably for three or four years there was on a plane every eight weeks. Yeah, wow. around the world. 
Qantas love me. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, a lot of, lot of uh, lounge uh, food. I'm not, I'm not sure my family did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of time away. Yeah. The, 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 the idea of turning a company around, right, it's something mm. that uh, face a lot of CEOs or leaders these days in is there a sort of structure? Is there a way in which you go about it? You know, you walk into a company with the idea of, of trying to make it more profitable. What, what does that look like to you? How do you start that process? Um, you start the process by listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I've developed a, a knack of, of listening to what people are saying who generally know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you you have to sort of cut through some of the vested interest that might be yep. in the conversation. But yep. um, I think if you spend enough time listening to the people there, you go out and I, I think when I got to Australia, I spent probably the first week in the office getting to know everyone in the the next two weeks I spent talking to customers mm-hmm. and probably the next two weeks after that I spent talking to suppliers. So just uh, which good, is good quality stakeholder engagement. Not, not, uh, <laughs> not anything uh, new. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then I think, you know, there's the one rule I would say in, in if you're looking at turning around something, and in, 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 in all the turnarounds that I've done, they haven't all been financial. Yeah. Okay. They, they could have been the fact that the company has lost its way or, uh, you know, it's, it's culturally or, culturally yeah. or or the brand hasn't, you know, brand starting to drift, you know, one way or the other, that that sort of thing. So it's not always financial. Financial is generally the more difficult. It's hard to do things if you don't have cash. But yeah, you know, no doubt. But the one thing that you you, you really have to, to focus on is the fact that it's highly unlikely, or this is my opinion, it's highly unlikely that doing what you're doing better is going to actually change mm. anything. And so if you can take that lesson, it's pretty much how the, the really good private equity companies work is they, they come in and they don't really look at the business and say, well, we can run this better than the last group did because they probably can't necessarily. That's not their expertise. What they can do is they can make some significant step change in the mm-hmm. business model. Okay? Yeah. And that's where the, the money might come, but you don't always have to have money to make that. Step change. So it, yeah. it's it's really identifying how you can actually make some sort of paradigm shift, you know, with the, with, the, with the business. I, yeah. I am not a proponent of, of the fact that well, we'll just manage it better than the last lot because I don't think that normally leads to too much success. Yeah. Because generally the people in leadership roles are there for a reason because they know how to run a business. Do you think on the culture side of things – I mean, with Synergy IQ, we sure. work a lot in this space. Do you think that you can continue doing the same things if the culture is not where it needs to be, if it's toxic, by just merely tweaking and improving? Obviously, it takes a long time to do that. Do you think that could provide benefit? Or you're saying this paradigm shift is bang, let's cut it, let's put a new model in, new service, new offering, new product, whatever it might be. Do you think it has to be that big paradigm shift? Um, I guess it's how much time you have to work with it. Yeah. Uh, okay. um, the so you, culture you is do... so culture is so critical. Yeah. Um, it's um, 
guess part of the question around the culture is if it is toxic, how did it get there? Mm. You know, did, did it get there by virtue of the people that are still in the organization mm-hmm. or, or is, is, it, is it historical and, and yet that still has had time to, to overcome it? And, and, and you have to find ways to, to improve that culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it, the single biggest way is generally starting to communicate with yeah. people yeah. <laughs> throughout the organization and sometimes that means just spend a lot of time walking around talking to people. Yeah. Getting them to understand where the business is going. Do you place in these turnarounds, and obviously, I mean, culture is, this is going to have a major impact on the, the culture of an organization. Do you look at your leadership team? Is that the first thing that you look at and go, the quality of my leadership team is not where I need this company to be in order to turn it around? So you bring in externals or do you educate or is it a bit of both? Um, I think one of the things you, you have to do right up front um, is you have to really, and I guess Simon Sinek goes on about you know determining the why. Yep. Um, but really that's just what's your purpose. Mm. Why, why, you do, why are we doing what we're doing, whether it's a not-for-profit or for-profit organization? Yeah. Uh, and do, does the leadership team actually understand that, yeah. you know, that this is why, why we're here and, and that everything we do actually should support that, mm. uh, that, that, that purpose or some, some company, yeah. like call it a mission statement, yep. that, that sort of thing. Um, and then I think you also have to examine what, what does this leadership team, what are the real beliefs that, that they have? And if you can extract that out of them, mm-hmm. uh, then you can start to determine whether or not the, the leadership team is going to have to change or, mm-hmm. or, 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 is, or is it just, does it just need the guidance to, mm-hmm. to get it to where it, it needs to be? It's probably rare in a, in a situation where the leadership team doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes voluntarily people decide yep. I don't want to be part of this, it's not how it used to be, therefore I'm not as comfortable, whatever yep. it might be, that affords you an opportunity to to make those changes. Sometimes you just have to make that hard hard decision. Yeah. I think a new leader coming in who's been headhunted to come in to turn things around, <laughs> mm. there's almost an expectation that the leadership of the organisation might change in that, isn't there? If if a great CEO has retired and a new CEO comes in, then there's probably less need for some change. There will still probably be some, but there's probably less need for that change. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I see your point. Do you you go from here? So you're working and then you end up, this parent company owns Sheridan, you come in, you turn around. Did you fix it? Did, did, did it work? Like, well, we did. So in, in the middle of that, there's a bit of a life change. Which, yeah, okay. You know, I don't, and I, I, I wound up, uh, my marriage broke up. Yep. Uh, a divorce. And, and yep. I had, had more than one I just child. Had, still uh, had the, the one the, child, the one child yep. at that time. Um, so that was, you know, you know never easy. No, you know, never would be. Uh, do, do you think looking back that, it's the excess traveling would have all in, would have all influenced, didn't we? Yeah, you know, the, the amount of time spent and 
you know, maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, the, yeah. the sort of, you know, second half of life, how, how it can differ from the first half yeah. of life. And I'm reading a book now that's all about that. But What's the book called? It's called uh, Strength from, from Strength to Strength. Yeah, exactly. uh, It's um, written by um, uh, a professor at Harvard Business School and the Harvard Kennedy School, which is the government school. Yeah. Uh, and I actually did a course under him this year, and okay. we actually struck up a relationship in, oh, in email and talking oh, to you. Excellent. And, um, and, and it's a fabulous book if, yeah. if you don't have time to read it. He's, he's, he does a podcast with Simon Sinek where they, ah, they summarize the book. Br- brilliant. Uh, so from strength to strength. Yeah, Arthur Brooks is his name. Arthur so, Brooks. Yeah. yeah. So the, it, the, the tagline is, uh, is, is finding uh, success, uh, happiness, and true purpose in the second half of life. So well if you're over 40, I would say you should read this book. Yeah. It really, there's scientific evidence about how the brain changes Yes, uh, from the early stages yes. to the latter stages and, that, and what yeah. brings, you know, happiness. Very good. Yeah. I, I often ask the question on this podcast to CEOs and the light leaders and anyone who's out there sort of trying to realize their visions is how do you manage the loving relationships that you have whilst trying to pursue your visions. It, it, it's possibly one of the number one things that I struggle with. One of my core values yeah. is growth, but also one of my other core values is family. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so it, I just have this intersection that I'm constantly faced with yeah. and just do not know how to manage that in the way in which I would – I would like to, and I don't know that there is a one size fits all, but it's yeah. What is your thoughts on that? Well, I'm I'm very fortunate. I I met a lovely lady, and yeah. I'm married. I'm married now with and with two other children, beautiful, uh, with two daughters, and she's probably been the biggest influence in my life, uh, mm-hmm. you know, other than probably my parents in in early stages. I mean, the, uh, she has an uncanny knack for, for communication. Mm-hmm. And, I have had emails from her. Yeah. I already yeah. see that. Yes, <laughs> um, and so uh, and is you know taught me a lot. Yeah, uh, great. You know, and and we actually became really good friends for a long time before we we got married. Yep. And so that probably plays into the relationship as, as well. Yeah, and, uh, and and she's been the real driver of this concept of. Expectation. You know, mm. if, if if I have an expectation of you, then you go outside of that expectation, then there's going to be a disappointment on, on my behalf, or or vice versa, mm-hmm. or maybe whether it's your kids or your wife. So, yeah. if you can actually sit down and have a plan, and you both know, you know, this is what each other's, you know, want, wants to achieve, and, yep. and 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 you can do it together, and you can support each other. It's just a whole lot easier to, to achieve that, that well, balance. And I think 100%. I think the other thing is that if I, I'm just lucky in the fact that that if something goes wrong in my life, uh, the first person I'm going to pick up and call is her. Yeah. You know, where other people might pick up and call their mate or yeah. know, whatever. I'm, I'm, it's the other way around for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love the expectation thing. I have I have this. Um, Debate, I wouldn't call it argument. I have this debate many a time 
with a lot of people actually and it's it's more around expect it is around expectations where people may have I'm not just saying my wife but it might be mm. my parents it might be sure. my sister it could be anyone my children it could be your children um, they have these expectations of me as a father a brother or a son a husband you name yeah. it and my response to them is well, that's your expectation of me. I have my own expectations of myself. Yeah. So we have different perspectives on this. And something that we we talk about a lot with Synergy IQ when we're going through change is there is a framework of change and perspectives is one of those pieces in mm-hmm. in that framework. And if you were to think of a, an intersection, I talked about inter- if you think of an intersection in, 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 a, in the middle of the street and there is this car accident in the middle of the, in the, middle of the intersection, and Myron, you're standing on one corner and I'm on the opposite corner and we see this car accident. We see the exact same car accident but from two different perspectives, mm. right? Yep. You see the little black cat that ran across the road and yeah. I see the guy in the back in the back car on his phone texting. Yep. None of us are wrong but we both have different perspectives and yep. I, I often treat that with, with relationships is you, I think it's unfair for you to get angry at me or to judge me or yeah. whatever it might be with the expectations that you've created in your in your mind yep. of what I should do. Therefore, the way we overcome that is exactly with what you said, which yeah. was clear communication and clear understanding of what we, we are doing. And I don't think it's any different with, with your your team here or your business partner. It's, if you're not on the same page in terms of expectations, mm-hmm. then you'll wind up having that same sort of, disappointment that, yeah. that happens. So I think when you, you're managing a team, and like I have an executive team now, yeah. I need to be really, really clear and, and they need we need to spend whatever time we need to make sure that we all understand that this is what is expected yep. and, and this is what they expect of me yep. in, in return. How often would you meet with your team and, and communicate those expectations? Is it daily, weekly, monthly? What does it look like for uh, you or is it is it just Most in- of my team I meet one-on-one monthly. Yep. Uh, I have two new execs that I meet fortnightly yep. with. I, I find that if you try to meet weekly, there's not enough time gone by that much has changed or much yeah. has happened. Uh, you know, you, you yep. need to give them time and space to, you know, to – to get things done to work on but, that. Uh, uh, so, is there a structure in which you would use to have it to com- clearly communicate? You know, say executive meeting. What are the non-negotiables that happen within that meeting? How do you? And obviously, nothing confidential, but from more of a structure, right? These are our initiatives. These are our KPIs. You're talking about the one-on-one. Yeah, the yeah. one-on-one, because it's a really interesting fact that there's a lot of CEOs out there, or there's a lot of leaders out there who don't have the regular meetings with their team. Mm. Right, it might be a, a group team meeting or whatever yeah. it is, but it's not the one on one, and the one on one is where you can create those expectations, yeah. isn't it? Well, we have executive meetings, and mm-hmm. we have three executive meetings a month. Yep. So there's one week in the month where we we don't, but the the one on ones are are less operational. Mm-hmm. They're they're more around what's working, what's mm-hmm. not working. What support do you need for what? Let's talk about you know what's not working and why it's mm-hmm. not working. Mm-hmm. You know how are you going with your balance in in life and yep. you know are, are you still enthusiastic about what you're doing? Yep. And, you know the so it, it's not very operational when we we talk about the one on ones. Occasionally when there's a you know an employee issue or 
or yeah. something that you might you might have to have that discussion. But we we might be, you know, just you know quickly over that over yeah, at, yeah. at any point. But the one on ones are are more about um, you know what can I do to 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 support you? Yeah, I love that. Mm. All right, so let's wind back. That's a rabbit hole that we went yeah, down. So yeah. you had a life-changing moment. Life-changing <laughs> moment, remarried, yeah. and now two daughters come come later. But it, this is all happening about the time that we are um, that we we we're breaking this textile company into mm. to parts yep. and restructuring it. So, um, so your role was was it, was it I was CEO? the CEO of the the parent yep. company. There was a um, um, with the GM of, of the Sheridan business. Yep. But it, it, as it turned out, I, I, I found the buyer for Sheridan. Uh, uh, they happened to come out of the U.S. and I knew them. Yep. Uh, and uh, so we we partnered in that and, and it meant that I needed to go with the, the Sheridan business. Okay. Um, but it was the it was the biggest business of, of the group. Yep. We sold off a couple of things and we restructured Another part of it, and and I, the the banks all got their money banks yeah. back. So well done. I was feeling a bit like a hero and being yeah. treated like once, yeah, <laughs> and being offered lots of opportunities yeah, to go right. look at other things. Um, so, uh, but there was a lot of satisfaction in the fact that that, that we were able to keep all those those businesses actually operating, yeah, uh, even in a an environment where you know tariffs and quotas were coming down and. Textiles was sort of going out. Yeah, you know, the manufacturing was going out at that point. It, it, with all your experience in turnaround companies uh, or turning around companies, and and in whatever aspect, is there a common themes that you've seen? I mean, you've done this time and time again. Is there common themes? You go, yep, this is the same thing that I saw in the last three companies. This is happening again. I think like, the question comes from the point of view of if you're noticing this sort of thing in your in your company, then it's time to act on it. Is is there anything that um, that you would see as a trend? Yeah, most of the time. Um, there are some exceptions to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some external influences oh. sometimes that obviously just completely Correct. wipe out someone's business strategy. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think the common thing that you, you find is, is it, it's, not, it's not generally just poor management. What it really comes down to is not recognizing what's happening within the market and how you actually need to adapt to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this this whole you know science of adaptive leadership, adaptive yep. management. Basically, uh, it, it's if you'll find that most companies that get in trouble have waited too long to make a decision to to do something. Mm-hmm. They're either risk adverse or so the, the Kodak moment, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, or you know, everybody else has moved manufacturing offshore, and now you can't compete because your your prices, yeah. you know, you can't your margins aren't good enough to support those prices or whatever it might be, and uh, and you don't have the ability to to to, to grow because they now do, yeah. And so, uh, it, it, you generally find that people have delayed decisions; they haven't made those decisions. For whatever those reasons might be, um, or they haven't looked at whether or not, you know, maybe selling the business and and 
doing some sort of a joint venture or merger or something like that, which might give them a bigger opportunity to, to actually turn around what they're trying to do. So mm-hmm. they quickly start to run out of money and then yeah. all of a sudden that's when the panic sets in. Yeah. So someone or a team of visionaries really will contribute to success further. So someone who's able to think outside the box. But yeah. like you said, there's, but, there might be the shareholders, all these different yeah. things come into play. But you can name, you know, you, you said Kodak, but you can yeah. name a lot of them. Yeah, correct, the yeah. companies that just simply failed to recognize what was going on around them. Yeah. You know, and they, they're just, we'll just keep doing what we're doing better. Mm. When, when in fact, um, well, today the world changes so quickly. Yeah. Change three times in a day. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah. Well, I think it's similar. Like if you if you use the same thought process for looking at what the external markets are doing and use manufacturing offsite as or overseas as an example, the same thing does apply to leadership. If you have a leaders who are running the business in a way like a dictatorship, it's like the old football coach. The yelling yeah. doesn't work anymore. No, it doesn't. It's the, the leadership styles need to change. We need to adapt. The younger generation are coming through. They have different expectations on how they should be treated. Completely. All the above. Yeah. I learn that every day with my yeah. two daughters. So yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I have two daughters also yeah. and learn, learning the exact <laughs> same thing. So when did the uh, when did the move out of Sheridan? So you've been in Sheridan. You're there for a few more so years. So in Sheridan, we, we operate that business for about four and a half years yep. uh, and then sell to a private equity Group. Um, I then transition out over sort of the next eighteen months, uh, and into your own consulting into my own, own consulting business, yeah, uh, and uh, in, on a, on a global basis. Yep. Um, so, um, at that point, um, hadn't really decided whether I wanted to do another one of these or, yeah. or not, and, but. Because it's hard work. But really enjoyed some of the things I was doing. I did a lot of work for uh, Waterford Wedgwood in the, in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a this company that we bought later on was was uh, uh, actually a competitor to Sheridan and, and I sort of was able while I was over there to sort of stay in touch with them and understand yeah. what was going on and knew the, knew the, the senior management and the owners and, you know, just said, if you're ever interested or you need to, let's yeah. let's talk. So that's how that actually came about. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And then worked with multiple international type com- oh, companies. Yeah, walked with worked any number of, of, you know, multinational companies and uh, both, you know, here, the US, the UK. Yeah. But usually they, they, they obviously had, generally had some tie back to, yeah. to Australia in some way. What did that look like for you? Was it just people picking up the phone going, Mar- generally, generally it was um, either a, um, Someone in my network was introducing me to them, or or, yep. um, um, or you know, a, a relationship at a, at a at a at a bank, or someone would say, you know, we're involved with this company, they're struggling. Would you mind talking to this person? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess over time, a lot of times, I I would go in and do some advisory work, and, yep. and then it, that would often lead to. Uh, becoming the CEO, or yeah. becoming, or, ta- or taking a well, this is this is the Bedford scenario. Bedford, and then uh, you know a couple of others prior to that. You know, so yeah. So, when does the Bedford world enter your life? Uh, it's 
sort of um, mid-year in 2021. 2021. Yeah. So, so a few years have skipped through then. You've done this over and over again. Yep. And you called into Bedford for the same reasons? Well, it, it, it really started with um, um, a phone call mm-hmm. uh, again. Uh, Bedford Bedford's needs to have a look at some of its commercial operations. Would you mind having a conversation with the NCO? And, mm-hmm. and so that's where it started. Mm-hmm. And, uh, did some advisory work for six to eight weeks and then so, so would you step in as the chief operating officer and and, and and run the commercial side and then sort of seven, eight months later it was would you step into the, to the CEO? To, well, it, they went through a recruiting process. I yeah. stuck my hand up and was fortunate enough to, to yeah. get the gig. Yeah. So why why move away from the consulting back into CEO gigs? Like It seems like you've done that a few times. What was it about the CEO role that always attracts you back? Well, in Bedford, I don't know that it was the CEO role that attracted me yeah, back, okay. basically to join them as the, the COO. It was it probably gets explained in this book that I just told you about a little yeah. bit around yeah. the fact that there there is this sort of shift in your 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 uh, your psyche and your the way you your brain operates in the in the second half of life, you you really you really get more happiness out of mentoring and coaching and teaching and yeah. guiding and, and, and real those sorts of things. And I and I I had never worked for a not for profit, even even though not for profits the size of Bedford really do have to run as a proper business. Correct, there's a lot of money flows through the bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never worked for a not for profit, so there was a lot to learn about that. And and, and the purpose of a not-for-profit is absolutely paramount. I mean, that that is that is the only they don't have shareholders. That's why they're there, mm-hmm. and um, and it was just something about the what I could see when I went in there was that this this whole world of disability employment and services for people with disability had shifted from state government funding to NDIS. The business model had been completely flipped on its head, uh, whereas it used to be wages used to be subsidized. Now there's no wage subsidy, yeah, there's payment for supports and yeah. those sorts of things. And yet, most of the most organizations like Bedford were still sort of standing like frozen in the headlights, trying to work out, okay, what do we do? Mm-hmm. How, do we, how are we going to do this? And that was I saw that as a real, real challenge. Yeah. I, I saw that as a real opportunity to. To make this, this 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 step change in 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 the way things needed to be done, and so it, it sort of attracted me back in to, yeah. to take up the challenge. For those who are listening, who might not know, you know, the wonderful work that is happening out at Bedford, can you give us a bit of a rundown on the, or give us an overview of Bedford and you know its overall mission? Sure. Well, Bedford really exists on for one reason, and in the, in the, the the purpose is really, really simple. I mean, we're there to support people with disability to live yeah. the life they choose. Yeah. Um, now that sounds like a broad, sweeping statement, mm-hmm. but if it, 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 it's true, and it's it's everything that we do, every decision we make, every every investment we make, it has to fit that purpose. And, and 
we, 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 that purpose sits right at the top of every board paper, every agenda, mm-hmm. you know, so that it reminds us that, that this, is, this is why we're here. Yeah. Um, so when you say to live the life that they, they, they choose, that they choose what, what does that mean to you and the team? So if you look across the services that, yeah. that Bedford provides, yeah. we want to provide as much choice so that people have the same choice that you and I do. Yeah. So if, if I look at it from an employment standpoint, mm-hmm. there will be we, – we deal primarily in intellectual disability. Okay, yeah. um, there's about 2,000 people with intellectual disability employed in, in South Australia. We, we've got about a little over 50% of those yeah. at, at Bedford. Um, that's a broad spectrum of cohort from 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 – fairly low-functioning clients to very high-functioning clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want first to give them a choice to, to come to have a job, yep. the dignity of a job, uh, if that's what they're looking for. Um, we want them to be able to come to a, a safe environment where they know that they're welcomed and, and they can they're safe. They feel safe there. Their mm-hmm. parents and carers can, can feel they're safe there. But they have a choice. So if, if, if I want to learn to do this job or I want to move this job and I want to progress just like I had that choice when I started out my career, they, they have that choice. And we want to provide as many of those opportunities as we can to, to be able to move from, from where you may not be in a highly productive role to, to, to even move, moving into open employment would you know, be the greatest thing that we've ever seen for, mm. for people with an intellectual disability, and a lot of people do. Yeah. They, 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 they travel that journey and they do. When it comes to things like our day options and our experiences with community activities, they, they're really designed around building capacity, building understanding of how to do things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it might be personal, sometimes it might be social, whatever, whatever it, it may be. Yeah. And the accommodation side of our business is for in supported independent living is for people who who need that support but are prepared and willing and want to live independently, uh, we can provide provide that opportunity for them. So they go and come just like anyone one else will, but they have those supports 24-7. Yeah. So it's an amazing thing. I, I, I want to expand on my knowledge of what you just said there, which was the dignity of having a job. Can, can you expand on that for me? Like I, I'm, I'm really... I, I think for me, you know, we talked about perspectives. I would love to understand the perspective of someone who has to think that or who believes that this job will provide them more dignity. Can you can you expand on that? Well, I guess if you if you you, you kind of look at it in its in its, in its rawest form, uh, it's very hard for someone with an intellectual disability to find a job. Mm-hmm. There are not many employers who are willing to employ them. Um, they probably look at them as a. They look at it's a risk. Yep. It's a it's a concern for work health and safety. You, yep. you know, yep. uh, is it going to slow down other employees? You know, yep. all those sorts of things. So there are not a lot of jobs in the mm-hmm. in the open employment market. Um, and you know, if you if you want a job and you have the ability to do a job, um, it really is a blow to your you know to your self esteem. You just people don't want to accept you, mm. you know, just because you have a disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And I think places like Bedford and other organisations, you know, across Australia who, uh, who do have disability employment uh, opportunities, uh, people love coming to work at these places. They, the if you, if you, if you talk, uh, there was a recent survey done by an organisation called Our Voice Australia. Something like ninety percent of the supported employees in disability employment said they loved working where they were working. That you, you just wouldn't find that in no. any sector anywhere. That that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so I, it's it's not just the dignity. There's a lot of socialising. We have yep. we have lots of people who find partners and get married and yeah, you know, great. all those those sorts of things. It's you know there's no doubt there's there's some respite for parents. In, in fact, there's an economic benefit to parents if if their child, for example, is working at Bedford. We don't employ anyone under eighteen, but if they I say child, they might yeah, be thirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it, it gives them the both parents could work you know while the child's working. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's an economic benefit to the family. So it, it's far greater than the the, um, the 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 sort of idea of just. I'm sent here so I can have a job. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's around self esteem. So we talked about your transition into the company as CEO, and you mentioned purpose being one of those leading indicators for you to 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 become that to become the CEO. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in your time at working with Bedford or any story in particular or anything that uh, any project that you've worked on or whatever it might be that that just really emphasize, emphasizes that choice and, and you just go, uh, yes, we are absolutely making a difference here. It'd be, it'd be really great to share a story like that. Yeah, there's probably a few of them that I could mm. – uh, refer back to um, we we have we have employees that um, they have aspirations mm-hmm. you know like anyone else yep. you know I, I and and so every year we do uh, independent uh, training assessments we create independent training plans and that's their opportunity to say, well, I, that's what I want to learn to do. And one of the things that we probably didn't do very well was we didn't actually sort of judge, measure how well we actually achieved some of those mm-hmm. objectives. And so we've, we've started sort of following a number of, of these to see whether we can actually achieve these. Mm-hmm. And we, we've had uh, some client and we, we've had one just recently in our, in our landscaping business who uh, is now he wanted to earn his cert three in, in landscaping so he's he's earned his cert two he's now earned his cert three uh, from TAFE uh, and he's now taking a supervisory role in uh, as opposed to just as uh, a production role mm-hmm. and and so I, I think what it the lesson to learn out of this is that, that if people have goals and aspirations and they, they're willing to actually put the time and effort into it, mm-hmm. uh, let's make sure that we, we, we're we actually supporting that and let's make sure that they're getting every opportunity to, to do that. Mm. I think that's just... And you, you guys are providing the extra- platform to be able to do that, aren't you? Yeah. 
Bedford is not without its critics, though. You know, can you explain why someone would be critical of of the Bedford Group and and what your thought process is around that? Why they would pick on a charity? Yeah. Uh, um, Look, probably education, a Mm. lack of understanding maybe. Uh, And look, look, um, uh, in some cases criticism might be justified. Yeah. But probably not a – the criticism is probably not necessarily – just Bedford, it might be the sector itself. Yep. Uh, and I yep. think we'll probably hear that when we the Royal Commission in Disability actually releases its findings. Mm-hmm. I, I think they, they, they won't be critical of any one provider necessarily. No, I think they'll, the be, industry, they'll be yeah. critical of the, of, of the federal government and the sector and the way yep. it's designed. Um, most of the criticism that, that, that I hear around Bedford is, 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 is a little bit um, – Lack of education, lack of understanding of, of, of how things work. Um, uh, there's, you know, people who are critical of the wages that are paid, for mm-hmm. example. Well, those wages are, there is a wage assessment tool that is um, approved by the Fair Work Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's essentially a measure of productivity, mm-hmm. you know, as compared to, you know, if, if I have a disability, I might be measured up against what you, you can do on in, in this job versus yep. what I can do. And if I can do 50% of that, then my wage probably sits around that, that 50% mark. There's yep. a calc- calculator that, that yep. works that. And then there's a supported wage award, mm-hmm. uh, which which provides those those wages. Um, and the criticism will often be around that, you know, these are much lower than, than minimum wage. Uh, and they, they probably are yep. because otherwise it's it, – it, it's very difficult for to find work for the for people to do and actually be competitive in, in the commercial world. Yeah, there are ways around that. There are better ways to do it. I think we 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 are getting some influence with Fair Work at mm-hmm. the moment. Fair Work's coming out with now they they're going to have one wage assessment. They're going to have independent assessors as opposed to bid for doing the assessment, which yep. I think is all very beneficial. Yeah, uh, the wages will be higher. They're moving moving up, but they're still not there. So. One of the things that we're trying to do is to to create a pathway internally through having our own open employment, become the market maker. I said there are very few jobs out there for yeah. people, but become the market maker in, in offering those jobs in open employment at mm-hmm. full award wages, not a supported wage, yep. uh, so that people can come in at this point and they can move all the way through or if they have the capacity to go, go straight there. Mm-hmm. There's, there. There's still some barriers to that with, with the way that um, the disability support pension works through Centrelink and, and the benefits that are attached to that support pension are, are absolutely very valuable and necessary for people with disability and you can get to a point if you're working too many hours and making too much money you can lose that, that support pension. And I think that's a that's a that's something we're seeing that I think that finally now, with um, the help of Bill Shorten and Amanda Rishworth, we're starting to get a conversation around. Okay, how are we going to do this? Brilliant, good. Now we I don't want to spend too much time on on the critics side, but yep. you guys at Bedford are doing some amazing things and have a master plan mm. in place. What does that master plan look like? What does the future of Bedford look like? I know there's some social impact stuff in there that you're uh, interested in. Yep. Um, can, can you give us a, 
nice glossary sure. on that. So if you look at Bedford traditionally, and, and, and I'll, I'll talk about employment first, and yep. I'll talk about the, the other, because employment's the biggest sector of what we do at, at Bedford. So of that 2,000 cohort, there'd, there'd be 1,100 in employment. Yep. So in in what we're trying to do is to basically have a, uh, a structure so that we have the full opportunity. So if you come in with an intellectual disability and you, you, you haven't had any training or you haven't learned how to do, you're coming out of school, whatever it might be, we want to offer opportunities. We want to offer them in things that, that young kids want to do. We, you, know, we, you know, we want things that, that they're working with computers or they're working with drones or they're doing this or doing that. They don't want to come in and put things in, in bags which has been sort of the, the criticism that you referred yep. to as, as, you know, what was previously known as a sheltered workshop or something yep. like that. We want meaningful jobs, meaningful work, and we want people to be have that opportunity to move in and, and find their way through that like anyone else would, would have that opportunity. And they have that choice, and that's what we mean by choice. Yep. All the way to the other side of that spectrum where you have – we're creating social enterprises. Now, these social enterprises are for-profit entities, mm-hmm. but they have a purpose, which is to employ people with disability. Yep. They, they reinvest their profit back in that purpose fully. So they are part of a, a so larger... When you say fully, 100%. 100%. Goes back right. into... The, they, they're part of the Bedford not-for-profit, so all the money gets reinvested back. Into the- this, this area of supported employment is, is struggles to actually be sustainable. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't it, – uh, the, the types of jobs and pricing are really difficult to, to make it sustainable. So this area is going to have to subsidize. Okay. That. That's, that's our plan. Yeah, great. Uh, on top of that, uh, we want our lotteries and fundraising uh, parts of Bedford to essentially – assist in, in that subsidy mm-hmm. uh, and, and to allow us to, to, to build new new buildings. So the, the master plan that you referred to is, is, is a $50 million investment uh, that Bedford's putting into um, building new fit-for-purpose facilities, modern, air-conditioned. You know, a lot of our facilities are dated. Mm-hmm. You know, they're tired. Yep. They, they need... And the cost to upgrade them is actually greater than to build new ones. Yeah, well. So the, 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 the sort of complexity is people relocating, people changing, all yeah. those things uh, take time. And they, you know, the, the, the families have to get involved. It's not just you having to find a, a way to the next, other yeah. site. It's everyone else yeah. in the family that's connected. Could increase the drive by 15 minutes or, yeah. Could, or the bus trip means two buses instead yeah. of one bus or yeah. whatever it might yeah, you know, and we go through all that. We have support people who will ride the bus, teach them, you know, make sure that people know how to do it, you know, mm-hmm. all that that sort of thing. Um, so the idea really behind this, and this, that there's there's a movement sort of worldwide when you talk about social enterprises. I know some of your previous podcasts there's been a lot yeah, of conversation we had, we around had the uh, Eloise Hall, who you know yeah, yeah. quite well from yeah. uh, Taboo Period Products. She's yeah. a remarkable human being. She is, and. Uh, those social enterprises are, are is 
is really a movement globally these days. I think you know the generation today is really really focused on on uh, in in social good and and compared to my generation, it, you know, that you know grew up in you know the seventies and eighties yeah. where it was just go go go. Yeah, you know, wherever I can get some money. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so uh, I think you know the world is changing in that, yep. that perspective. You know, and so. These social enterprises are really designed to to give people with intellectual disability and and all abilities yep. an opportunity to to do what they want to do, yeah. live the dream. So, social enterprise as a topic is something that you are passionate about. I know your daughters are involved with social enterprise. Is that correct or no? They just no. 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 They're just friends with people who no, are, they, they're friends with people who are. But yeah. I, I think probably what I said to you at one point was. Uh, I just watch the companies that they buy from and they yeah, shop with. That's true. Almost that's right. always have some sort of social impact. They do, and and and, and so they, they pick and choose who they buy from yeah. based on what they know that social yeah. impact. And they, so they have that consciousness around it. The, they absolutely do. So, what type of businesses should look at? Social impact, like, is it is it something that they can they turn their moral? Because because to me, when I was listening to Eloise speak, and we've met a few times after yeah. to talk about the operating model of the business and and the way it all works, but for me, it does seem a little bit more complex than the traditional model. It's not as easy to run a social enterprise when you are when you are putting the, that profit back into it. So someone like Bedford who on the side builds a social impact, that money then goes back into the cause, it's great. And there's also another business potentially feeding the cash. Cash is always king, right? Absolutely. There are some companies that uh, struggle to find investment because the profits are going back to the cause. Yep. And that seems to be the issue I see. Is that something that you would see as well? Yeah, and this is this is really where I'm I'm spending a lot of time trying to. I, I see it probably. I think it, interestingly, I, I went to the Social Enterprise World Forum, which okay. happened to be in Brisbane yep. in, in September last year, um, and I went to a debate about what the definition of a social enterprise actually was. It's probably a good starting point that we could talk about. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and one side was sort of arguing, well, the debate was really whether it should have a definition. One side was arguing that it should and this is what the definition was and the other side was arguing, well, we really shouldn't have a, a definition. It's, 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 it's really about the social impact. It's not about what the structure looks like or, yeah, okay. or do I take external capital into my business to grow or any of those sorts of things. It's, you know, it, it was – but I, in, in the world that we're operating in, I'm trying to understand the – for me, I think it's a matter of how do you balance the the, the financial and the social performance, mm. you know, and and so you have to measure both. And how do you give? How do you give whoever supplies the capital, whether that happens to be Bedford through its own balance sheet yeah. or an external investor in our social? How do we give them both the financial return and the ESG return, basically, yeah. with the S and the ESG, but. Um, and there is a lot of capital out there looking to invest in in that in that area. Yeah. So these social enterprises, um, 
I don't think you can fault a social enterprise, whatever structure it takes or whatever definition it has, because its real purpose is to make an impact. Yes. Okay. If you want it to be a business where people can be paid the kind of wages that we're trying to pay people with disability, it has to have a financial performance to, to mm-hmm. go along with that. But at the same time, it has to have a, a social performance, and that social performance has to be measured. We need to know what that impact yeah. is. So in, in our social enterprises, we're working with Flinders University and their social impact area to actually create the, 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 the metrics uh, yeah. right from the very start as to how do we collect the data, how do we know exactly what that, that impact that we're having is. And, yeah. and, and part of that impact might be for the benefit of taxpayers because people are earning higher wages, they're paying more tax, they're not being supported through you know, yeah, yeah. government schemes or whatever it may be. Uh, there are lots of ways for, for social impact to, mm. to occur. But it's a it's a tricky world of trying to understand well, how like, you how you do this. I mean, you know, we said earlier, cash is king, right? And the more cash you have, the more ability to have an impact. That's kind of the way I've always thought about it, right? So you see, does it? Am I, am I, so say you do have a let's use the taboo period product yeah. uh, as an example. They have this amazing product. Yep. That they need money to create, mm. and the more that they create, the more impact they can have, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm saying here. But, but but when investment is tough to find, because the returns go back into the it, yeah, and then it becomes uh, philanthropic. More, then, more, then, more, then more, you, more than it does exactly, then, exactly, yeah. and then and then that's that money is much harder to find when you're looking for the philanthropic. Yeah, and, and, and it it is, and and you know. Probably, it, it, it's growing in in, yeah. in Australia, but it's not as as, yeah. as, as big as it is in, in the North US, America yeah. or Europe, basically. Yeah, yeah. So you, and I think that's the part because you see these, and you, I, I, you there's a few of really great uh, social impact enterprise in in South Australia, and you just you want the best for them, but yep. like money is always the the but stickler. If you if you're going to increase that impact. Then the then the, the the business you're running is going to have to grow in order for that to happen. Correct. So yes, you can have an impact, but it's always going to be pretty much in one spot and yeah. confined. You're right. Hundred percent. How do you see? Um, how, how do you see the trends within social? Like, can technology play? I mean, you've gone through this forum. You're obviously well researched. Can technology help? in any of these areas, in, in, in growing the social enterprise? Um, I mean, technology can help everything, but is there a way in which we can leverage technology to improve performance or improve reach of a social enterprise? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're looking at, I think it's three different um, opportunities of a social enterprise at the moment yep. which is, uh, have all come about as a result of, of technology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Things we hadn't actually thought about, but they they, they potentially can disrupt certain uh, sectors of the market. Mm-hmm. And it's not a problem for us to have uh, our clients actually working in these businesses. Yeah. The technology is such that, that 
in fact, I think they would love it. Yeah. Know, these, these sorts of things. So, is, there, is it something you can divulge or is that secrets uh, that you want to keep close to your chest right now? <laughs> Probably too early days to okay. talk, talk about it. Yeah. Very good. How do you think governments can support this area more? That's a really, really good question. It's, um, I, I, I guess, first of all, government has to, to sort of define what their role really needs mm-hmm. to be or should be. Yep. Um, and they would look at the, the, the social impact more than anything else. So mm-hmm. if you look at something like the NDIS, for example, I mean, it has been an en- enormous benefit to people with disabilities. Um, it's created opportunities for people with disability that, and, and, and solutions. And it, it, it's been enormous. It, the cost of it is, is extreme at yeah. this point. Next, next year it'll be the single largest budget item if, yeah. if Treasury doesn't sort of cap it at some Hold point. Back, yeah. um, but there are parts of the uh, – parts of, of – services that don't neatly fit into the NDIS and, mm-hmm. and so I think government needs to to look at how they how they approach some of these things mm-hmm. it's still a bit split between Shorten's portfolio and Rishworth's portfolio you've got NDIS in one and Department of Social Services in another both of them touch disability in a lot of ways and and so I, I think one approach that from my my view is that government needs to to bring all this together, have a consolidated uh, uh, universal approach to it, and not not have it so fragmented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's one one thing they can can do. I think the other thing is that, and I think it's happening, it's starting to happen. Is that I think government needs to to listen to people with disability. I think they need to hear that voice, mm-hmm. hear what they want. They don't easily have a way of being heard. Uh, so often it comes through providers like like Bedford. Yep. And then there's there's sometimes this view that, and let's go back to this criticism, there's sometimes this view, well, Bedford's just saying this because it's in the best interest of Bedford as mm-hmm. opposed to their their clients or employees. So they need a voice. They need, they need a way to have that voice. Yeah. And it's starting to happen because um, both ministers are, conducting roundtables and discussions and I think that's probably the single biggest thing government can do is listen to people with disability. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't hurt that Dylan no. Dylan Alcott yeah. was you know uh, has a voice yeah, and, he does. And, and and he can speak. The NDIS world I know many people who work in that space or in this space of disability where where they have the ability to offer they own businesses and have the ability to offer mm. services that are funded by NDIS. It does seem somewhat like a cash grab for a lot of people and there are there has been news articles and there has been like you know, today, tonight, all these sort of scenarios, 60 minutes where there have been some fraud. There is a bit of fraud going on. Does it feel like to you it's a foolproof system or is there a there needs to be a bit of work? She talked about the budget going to be bigger and bigger but yet there are these other businesses that are taking advantage. I'm not saying Bedford is but yeah. I'm just suggesting that the, the, does the systems feel right to you right now? 
Oh, look, I, I think any time you, you have government spending $35 billion um, and there's going to be people trying to take advantage of it. Yeah. Um, you know, no different than the aged care scenarios we've seen, yeah. you know. Uh, so, yeah, either, you know, I think there's, there's outright fraud, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where people are just exploiting the system mm-hmm. completely. And then there's probably, um, there are probably incidences of, of the, it, the, the systems are very rudimentary, mm. you know, with the, yeah. with the NDIS and most of the providers. So there are probably instances where, where, Things aren't always the way they should be, but mm-hmm. I don't think there's any intentional fraud in that. I think there's the fraud that they're talking about is you know through organized crime and through you know people who really are trying to rot the system, soften their way through. Yeah, very good. It, it, yeah, it, the, the answer is what would be beneficial would be to 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 build systems where the, the providers are. Properly linked into a, an NDIS portal mm-hmm. um, instead of having everybody off doing their own thing. Yeah, yeah. makes a sense. Bit like, a bit like Centrelink. If yeah. you can do it, I mean, the ATO, you can fill out your tax return. Correct. You know, you know NDIS needs to get to that. Yeah, the model's there, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Copy paste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we start rounding up, you are very interested in in the leadership, and you, you're a fellow of the governor's leadership. Um, foundation. I, I just want to re- ask a few questions around leadership and what what advice do you have for other CEOs or aspiring CEOs or entrepreneurs around their own leadership development? Um, I mean, because self actualization is is critical in all this. It is. It is. Look, I, I, I think. I think you have to you, you you have to want to learn, mm-hmm. and, and I think you, you need to put yourself in a position to learn. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like I said, I just did this course at, at, at Harvard last year. Yeah. Uh, probably eighty percent of that course I already knew, already mm-hmm. had. You know, you know, some of it was fairly basic. Yeah. But it was, but it was the. The opportunity to talk to a hundred people around the world. Yeah, we're on this Zoom call every. I just happened to do it at one thirty in the morning yeah. because it, that was the it was done at you know nine thirty in in, in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and there were you know in my study group I had people from Africa, people from Scandinavia, Europe, and South America. So you know I it was just you know I was just trying to listen to everything they were saying about mm. what they were doing in these various organizations to to learn from them you know uh, and it it was I think you just gotta you got you gotta put the time into it to, yeah. to learn it I mean leadership is 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 as much a science as it is a, a you know something you, you you're born with yeah no doubt and, well, and, 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 I, and I it's also the, about the person that you are leading or the people yeah. that you are leading as well and, and I think you know it, it, leadership in is basic all the way down is is really just about caring for people around you. Mm. And uh, you were talking about that little thing where I might be sitting here and you're sitting there and we saw this accident happen yeah. and we saw it completely differently. And, 
and I think you find that you know when you when you when you really have a um, an understanding of leadership, you'll understand that everyone comes at something from a different angle, mm. and, and the more diversity you can include in that, and the more you know ideas you get from from different angles, the better results you'll wind up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think you know one of the things you learn in the governor's leadership program is not only to do what you described and look at the problem, but then flip it around and put yourself in the other side of it and look as the problem, Yeah, you know, and see if you can actually understand that, you know, where this side's coming from as opposed to, I mean, because often in a management position, you know, you say, well, we just need to do this. Yeah. You know, when in fact, all the people around you might act, might not actually agree. <laughs> we yeah. just need to do that because you haven't considered all of these things. Yeah. And so I, I think it's just having that ability to, to again, just surround yourself with, with people who and, and, and create that environment where people will talk to you about it. Mm. I love that. I think last time we spoke, you said something to me. And I wrote it. I wrote it down, and you said business is a set of problems that need to be resolved. That was my wife's definition. Oh, that was your wife's definition. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. So, yeah. kudos. But yeah. the the what stuck out for me was was that is the idea of leadership your ability to lead people through a set of problems, <laughs> or you know, is that kind of, or is it? Because no doubt you're going to set this strategy and then naturally you're going to come up against these problems along the way. Yeah, that's probably where I would would draw a difference between management and leadership. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think from a management standpoint, business is a set of problems that need to, yes. to be resolved. And, you know, they, they probably every day you walk in and there's another one. Um, leadership is probably how you go about it. Yeah. You know, in, 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 and how you hold yourself. How you, how you create the environment where. These problems can be solved in a way, or in a in a in a in a, in a manner that that you include uh, others, and you 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 come to a better solution. Mm. Do you do you learn leadership through being a leader, or can you go and learn through a half day course? <laughs> well, you can learn from a half day course. I don't think you can actually. Uh, probably become good at it unless you do lead. Yeah, you know, if you, you know, you can teach me how to kick a football, but you know, the only way I'm going to get better at it is practice. <laughs> I agree, and I think the the half day course is definitely something that contributes to your kit bag. I guess yeah, is, yeah, is that's the, just part of. Oh yeah, I haven't thought about that. I could do it that way. Yeah, but, but until you try it and you practice it and you. And get better at it. And you it. get feedback on it, and then you probably, you know, won't, won't perfect it. What's the idea of living within the ambiguity and stepping into the discomfort as a leader, isn't it? There's those mm. conversations that you just do not want to have. Yep. <laughs> There's yep. phone calls that you don't want to take. Yeah, no. yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you manage yourself in that situation? How do you compartmentalize the, the issues of the business to, to the issues with people? Um, I probably feel a bit lucky in the sense that I I think I do it almost naturally, mm. um, whereas I know other people 
struggle to yeah. compartmentalize those those sorts of things. Um, I think the thing you have to really do is is you, you have to understand that almost all the time when you get into these situations you're talking about, there's there's emotion involved. You almost have to take as much of that emotion out of it as you, as you can, so that you actually don't get drawn one way or the other. And then, and that's hard because sometimes the emotion just overtakes, mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes you can't compartmentalize it. Sometimes you just they, they they do have too many too many same connections, yeah. and touch points. Basically, you have to just realize that that they do. But I I. I think from a business standpoint, you know, if I, I look purely at operations, for example, I mean, mm. that's, that for me is easy to compartmentalize. Yeah. They, 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 they are, they're, they're, they're tried and tested ways for how you solve those, those yep. issues. When it gets down to people, which is probably where most of these things occur, then you, you have to have a, a way of, of listening, communicating, trying to coach teach and at some point probably making a decision yeah. if you have to but uh, I think that's the, the battle we all face every day okay. I'm a young leader and a uh, young CEO I want to yeah. make it down on this world and there are situations that pop up daily where that sickening stomach I mean, feeling I mean you would have felt it absolutely does it does it become less and less over the years? Does experience no. push that away? No. no. What probably helps is you, you learn to trust yourself. Mm. Uh, where in, in, in the early days you, you're probably sitting here you know, thinking, am I reading this situation right or am mm. I understanding all this? If I make this decision, you learn, to, you learn to trust yourself. And I think over time the more you trust yourself, then the, you know, the more you, you, you do have that confidence that, Yep, the sickening feeling still comes. Yeah, you know, oh, here we go again. Yeah, you know, and then what? Then you, you you generally have experience, and you probably start to say, okay, well, this is how I I need to dissect yeah. this. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I've been told numerous times is that I need to start trusting myself more. Yeah, it's hard. What does that look like? I yeah, I, you know, I I trust. In my ability to have a great conversation, I trust in my ability to. But as someone who has and and walks on the edge of perfectionism, mm. <laughs> the, the the trusting is difficult because. Yes, I have a growth mindset. I'm happy to make mistakes, but when you're dealing with people, and you're dealing with livelihoods potentially, and mm-hmm. you, you know mistakes, you, you don't want them to happen. They're not the type of mistakes you want to make, right? <laughs> They're not, and and you know, I look back on my career, and there are probably one or two times when I regret doing what I did, in, you know, in, around a, a, a people problem or a situation. Mm. I, I think I could have managed it better, and I hope that I I, I learn, you know, from it, you know, mm. because it's it is um, it, it, it's even more gut wrenching than than the the problem itself, mm. uh, but maybe, maybe, don't try to be the perfectionist. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I think I it's think it's the, I think it's it's really hard to walk that line. To, 
need to be the perfectionist because you, you'll often find you're not making a decision because you, you, you're trying to, to, to get that perfect solution. Yeah. You know, when, when in fact, you know, making a decision and that, that, that doing something and making progress is, is probably more beneficial than trying to wait till you get to that Great. Yeah, I mean, the, I'm definitely not saying perfectionism is a trait that you want in your, in your <laughs> repertoire. It's, yeah. it's something when I say I walk the line of it, it is, it, it's the, I think it's probably got more to do with the, in a, the, the, the inability, well, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to hurt people or I don't want to upset people is probably a better way yeah. of putting it. And I think, yeah, I think the, the older you get and the more experienced you get, and I don't mean this in a, in a selfish way, the less you worry about what other people think. It's, mm. it's, you know, if it, 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 when I say other people, I mean the, the sort of broader community, yeah. you know, who may criticize you for what you did because that that decision may be between you and that individual that you're you're needing to make a decision. Yeah, they haven't got the con- they haven't got the perspective, have they? Yeah, yeah. Right? So the rest of them are looking at it from all, yeah. you know, whatever whatever information they have. One thing that I work, I'm working on. I, I, I work with a lot of people, and as you can imagine, running this podcast, mm. I have a a kit bag of mentors up my, in my pocket, yeah, right, sure. where I can call people on a whim and 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 ask him a question. I was given advice the other day, saying that I'm listening to too many people, and I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Can you have too much advice as a CEO or as a leader of an organization? coming in that it becomes overwhelming that then you get the analysis paralysis and you don't know what to do with it because you listen to so many great people and you listen to all their advice, some contradict each other and then you're left with, well. Yeah, I I would probably say you can have too many, too much advice. Mm. I, I, I think it, it, it can cause you to be, questioning your own judgment you know when you're getting different opinions from different places and I and I think you know there again this probably comes back to learning to trust your judgment mm. you know, and um, so it's hard it's hard to say don't listen to other people don't don't reach out to other people to get those yeah. opinions because I think that's what helped form some of the yeah, it's about what you do with those opinions, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I think how do you, how do you then sort of how do you then sort of dissect all that? Mm. And, and, and to me, that's where the problem is that you know you can just get frozen. You know, and that, mm. you know that's you see that in, in, in business. You don't do anything you know, mm. because this one says this and this one says that. I think you have to come up with a solution. And say, well, okay, if I go that way, this is this is where I'm going. If I go. Once you know where you're going, once mm. you've got clarity of purpose and clarity of plan, that advice will probably either support that purpose and plan or it'll, it'll be contrary to it. Mm. I would always go with where it supports that purpose yeah. and plan. If you've got clarity in the purpose of what you're doing, which you guys do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it, uh, these these scenarios are not just things that I'm de- grappling mm. with. It's all yeah. leaders, isn't it? Uh, well, you see, you see it in, in you, know, you follow the news with government. I mean, you know, you're getting advice from everybody, yeah. you know, and then nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. 
this circle spin. One last question that I do want to ask before we jump into the quick fire questions is, is how much of your decision making do you rely on gut versus logic? Um, I, 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 I trust my gut. Yeah. And, and it often my gut will, will be because I've had an experience somewhere mm. that's not dissimilar to, to the situation. Yeah. Or, or um, I, I don't find that I have too many times that logic and gut are that different. Mm. I might have some times where logic and gut are very similar, but back to the last question, a lot of people – other people's opinion might be different from mine. Yeah. And I probably will trust my gut. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think if you if you feel – if you, you take the responsibility and you say, uh, okay, I'm accountable for this, so I, I have to trust my own, mm. my own gut here. And I'll just – I'll be accountable for whatever yeah. the decision I make. I love it. Beautiful. Excellent. All right, let's jump into some quick fire questions before we round up. What So you – First question is, what are you reading right now? But you've answered that already. Well, I'm reading two books. I'm reading this uh, from strength to strength, and I'm reading a book called Youthquake 4.0. Okay, uh, which was written by a, a futurist um, out of New South Wales, and he's basically it's written around the the, the young generation mm. and what he calls the the fourth industrial revolution. Mm. So it's quite interesting. Mm. Youthquake what, 4.0. What's um, what's happening in that space? Well, read the book. <laughs> yeah, we'll read the book. But it, you know, it, it, I, I just, I just love watching how these futurists deduct, you know, these, yeah. these things. But yeah. you know, basically, it's just, it's, it's around the psyche of the youth and and, and all the changes that are happening tech in, in technology yeah. that, that's that's just changing the world we live in. Mm. And uh, they they move with it very quickly. Yeah. You know, it's almost the and then your, your comment that they do things differently. Well, they do. You know, yeah, they just they just get on with it. Mm. Uh, so, what's one book that stands out from the crowd for you? Is, like, is there one that you've gifted? Is there one that you've recommended more? Uh, there's a book that I probably go back to, uh, Tom. You know, over and over, um, it's a book called "If It's Going to If It's Going to Be, It's Up to Me." Okay, uh, it's written by Robert Schuler, who uh, who basically it, it's it's a book that that's about the power of positive thinking, mm. and but more so about the fact that you control your destiny, mm. or you can let other people control it. So, uh, I think sometimes when I'm faced with a difficult situation, I go back and I sort of read a chapter or two of this book and look at it and it, it says to me, you know what, it, it, you're the problem, not that. Not yeah. <laughs> you don't want to fix it. So if it's going to be, it's up to me. It's probably a good life philosophy, really. It really is. Yeah. yeah. What's one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? <laughs> um. Probably that the 
the problem keeps returning if you don't learn the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, you Can't know, keep I, I, banging I, mean, I guess if you think about how many times you, you face the same situation, uh, the same problem comes up, you know, and you say oh. to yourself, "Geez, I already knew I should have handled that differently, or yeah. sort of done that differently." I think, it, I think, you know, it, 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 it just, I think, there's almost this sort of inertia around you that sort of, if, you know, if you don't learn the lesson, then you, you know. The test is coming back. Yeah. Well, that's an Einstein thing, isn't it? You can't mm. keep banging your head against the wall yeah. and expecting different results. That's right. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, Three people that you could invite for dinner, who would they be? Dead or alive? Whoever you want. Oh. That's a hard one for me. Mm. Um, um It's... Um, Probably, I, I would say that I would probably. Uh, you, you, you almost feel like you'd like to invite some of the current politicians and bang some heads around. But uh, <laughs> I, I'd probably like to have Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah, well. for the three, I'd really like to understand what quietly got talked about between mm. the three of them when the world changed so dramatically. Mm. Yeah. That'd be a very interesting conversation. Yeah. What's some of the best advice that you've ever received? Yeah, I think probably two areas. One is um, don't be afraid of of the truth and you know, whatever whatever it is, it is. Yeah, trying to get around that is probably never going to work out. Mm. <laughs> it always has a way of yeah. sort of biting you. No uh, point putting your head in the sand, is it? Yeah. Very good. If you had one, if you had sorry, if you had a time machine. One trip, where would you go? That, that would probably be a bit personal. I, I'm I'm in the middle of writing a book about oh, wow. my family history. Very good. And and so all of the, the the characters and the dates and the places and everything they're they're facts. Mm. They, but I don't have a whole lot of information about mm. them, so I'm making up the story about their lives. Yeah. Uh, I would probably want to go back to the point where I. Absolutely, I'm certain I can trace my family back to, and then there's a little bit of uncertainty as to the the next. I'd like to go back to that point and actually clarify. Yeah, <laughs> some the other. so it's a bit personal. No, I love that. We had I, had, I still remember Shane from Lenovo said one day he goes, "I wouldn't mind," and it just blew my mind. And I've, I've repeated this a few times, and he said, "Um." I would go back to when my grandfather was 18 years old and just hang out with him and just <laughs> – Well, it's kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah and yeah. just learn, like just understand what type of yeah. person that he was. I thought it was really insightful. If your house was on fire, your pets were safe, your family was safe, is there anything that you'd run back in and save? Um. Well, the obvious answer is photos, but they're all backed up in the cloud, yeah, so I don't really need, yeah, <laughs> need right. those. It's a tough question these um, days. I'm not a very materialistic person. Yeah. So, I mean, they're not sort of material things that I'm really yeah. attached to. Um, I, I, and I, I think all the important documents are in a fireproof. Yeah. Uh, so, 
I don't know. I'd probably, yeah. probably just turn to my family and say, is there anything else we yeah. need? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting is if we'd asked that question in 1979, yeah. would it be a different answer? Oh, yeah. It, it would have been. been. It would have been, you know, the, the obvious answer is you want to get the memories out of everything. It. The yeah. memories, that, you know, they're lost. But, Agreed. you know, 99% of those are Online ex- these days. accessible now. Yeah. Yeah. If you had one superhero power or if you could have one superhero power, what would it be? Um, well, I expect you're talking about the Marvel characters. Marvel, so, I mean, you can make I, up. You can I, make I, up I, I think my superpower would be manifesting. Yeah, uh, I, I think I'd like to be able to have that power to turn a dream into reality. Oh, I like that. Um, I think that would be the superpower I'd like to have. If I had to pick a Marvel character, I'd, I don't know. I'd probably say. X, no, 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 X-ray doesn't vision need, or something. Doesn't need to be a Marvel character. Man, but I think I, manifesting would be well, one. I like that. Yeah. I've never thought about the manifesting one. Yeah. I've always said like the power of knowledge because yeah. the power of knowledge you can just do whatever do you want. Anything. Yeah, you can. <laughs> but manifesting could could almost just create it for you. Isn't yeah. it really? Yeah, it's brilliant. Okay, my favorite question of the whole podcast, what's your best dad joke? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really much uh, of a, 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 a um, I heard one the other day. Um, how much does a really cool hipster dad weigh? How much? An Instagram. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. <laughs> well done. Very good. Thank you very much for your time today, Myron. It was a pleasure listening to your story. Starting off all the way back in Woodstock to where we are today with uh, Bedford Group and all the amazing work you guys are doing. Kudos to you and the team out there. I think it's an amazing um, organization that is obviously having impact on many, many lives here in South Australia and beyond. Um, So, yeah, well done to you and the team. And we're very excited about this master plan and everywhere that you're taking it. So uh, keep up the great work. Thank you very much for inviting me in. I've I've enjoyed it. It's been great. Where can we find you should people want to get in touch? Oh, you can find me on LinkedIn and very easy to find or you can contact Bedford uh, uh, easy enough. Beautiful. Excellent. So Myron Mann on LinkedIn if you want to reach out or follow – Yeah, check us out at synergyiq.com.au and uh, we'll check you next time. See you guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care guys. All the best.